Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Sometimes when we read the introduction of a book, we tend to go through very quickly and take it as just an introduction to the book. But you'll be surprised sometimes how many things you find in there. Today we are reading from the beginning of a letter to the Romans, and you might wonder what in the world it has to do with the season that we are celebrating. And my answer is quite a bit. Just give me a second, and I'll show it to you. First of all, he talks about Paul, not as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The Greek word used that is doulos, and that means a servant. It can also mean a slave. So the translation that is given in order to avoid the confusion with slavery in the sense that we, that we would understand it today is bondservant. It's a good translation. But I wanted you to know that it's also a word that is used for, for a slave. So I'm wondering how many of us regard ourselves as slave of Christ in such a way that we would start a letter with that description. Hi, I'm Luciano. I'm a slave of Christ. Hi, I'm Luciano. I am a servant, a bondservant of Christ. So right there, we have food for thought, don't we? We already look at ourselves and we wonder, am I really that kind of a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ? And then he continues, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Look at that word, the term called in John chapter 15 and verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you may go and bear fruit and that your fruit will remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Oh, I hear a lot of people quoting the second part of that verse, not quite the first part. But that's another sermon for another time. What I would like to point out to you is that you did not choose Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? Sometimes we talk about us coming to Christ. We're talking about us accepting Christ and so on. Do you realize that it is him who came looking for you, calling you, choosing you? And that's why. That's why you're here. 
That's why you are one of his children, one of his brothers and sisters, a child of God, a Christian. But it's also why you have a job to do. You have a mission to accomplish. And Paul here acknowledges and recognizes his mission as being called by Christ, not having chosen it, how by all means God had something to do with that. Paul would not have chosen that mission. In fact, he chose a completely different mission. I would dare say quite the opposite. The mission that he had chosen was to destroy the Christians. Well, God turned it around. And when God turned it around, he became an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Do we understand that gospel? Uh, do we regard ourselves as being set apart to share the gospel with others in our life, through our example, through our words, through everything that we do? Do we breathe the gospel? Do we show it? Paul did, because God called him for that. But God has called us as well. We did not choose him. He chose us. And he has sent us. He sent us out to share something very special. Verse 2, a gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. A gospel that for centuries, actually millennia, was something that people were longing for, craving to see, to hear, to understand. Do you realize that the prophets of the Old Testament, those giant names that we look at and we look upon as, as wow, you know, these are awesome people, wonderful people, people of God. These are the heroes of the Old Testament. Heroes that have problems and faults, sometimes in defects and shortcomings, but God called them and they were faithful to him despite it all. But we look upon them as the great names of the Old Testament they were longing, craving to see and to know what you know today. We have a very privileged position. In verse 3, it says the gospel is concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness that is Jesus Christ our Lord. And in that statement, we see the essence of the gospel. In that statement, we see Jesus Christ proclaimed as fully God as well as fully man. Very God and very man because of that amazing thing that we call the incarnation. You see, it talks about a birth. And it talks about the resurrection. If we only had the birth, we might have had another great man, maybe another great prophet, another great name, just like one of those giants of the Old Testament, like one of those great names of the Old Testament, right? We might have had another one to add to them. But that would be it. But you know, the others are dead and gone, and they're left in memory. But Jesus Christ lives on and gives us a presence, still mighty 
with power. As good old Scottish preacher Barclay said. It's a good statement. Because it points out the difference, isn't it? But we will address that a little bit in a few moments, a little more. In verse 5, we read, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Notice that statement. I would like for you to notice the difference between verse 1 and verse 5. In verse 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. He's speaking in the singular. In verse 5, he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Plural. He's not the only one. He's not the only one who's been commissioned for the, with the purpose of sharing and bringing the gospel to others, to the Gentiles. Well, we are surrounded by them. And we have the same mission, to share the gospel. Sure, if we want to put it in that way, may not, we may not call ourselves apostles. But wait a minute. If apostle means the one who's sent out by Christ with the gospel, in a way, we share in that commission, don't we? We share in that mission. And so here Paul reminds us that we are all under that grace. And because of the grace of God expressed in Jesus Christ, we all share in the mission that he has that apostleship of carrying the gospel to others. So carrying that good news, the same good news that the prophets of old were craving for. And I'm thinking, wow, what a privileged opportunity we have. In fact, it says in verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Referring to the Romans. Well, first of all, it says, among whom? Among what? Among the Gentiles. Verse 5. You also are the called of Jesus Christ. So he brings up the fact that the church in Rome is primarily a Gentile church. There are issues in there because of the Jews in Rome and the way they interact with one another. It's addressed later in the letter. But right now, he talks about among you. Among whom? Among the Gentiles, you are the called of Jesus Christ. He would say the same about us. We are the called of Jesus Christ. Once again, we did not choose him. He chose us. And he called us. And he commissioned us to do a job. And that job is to represent him. That job is to be a reflection of him. That job is to bring his light into the world because he has kindled a light in every single one of us and he says, I don't turn on the light. I don't turn on that lamp to hide it. We put the lamp in a visible place. We put the lamp on a table so that it will give light to the whole room. We put the lamp on a pedestal. We hang it from the ceiling. We put it in a place that is visible for everyone so that that light may be shared. And he closes the introduction by saying to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, I'm Italian. I lived in Rome. In fact, I pastored in Rome. And I dealt with Romans. 
in our modern days. And the last word that will come to your mind when you're in Rome, dealing with the Romans in modern days, is the word saints. But then you look at the people that are worshiping God, the people who are called by Christ to be in Christ, and you realize, yeah, we may not look that way so much, but we are saints. We are people that are called by him and set aside by him. We are people that are chosen by him to, to do that work, to carry on that work and to show the presence of Christ in us. But I promised I would address verses 3 and 4 a little more in detail because that is really the core of the message of today. Because in verses 3 and 4 we find a parallel Notice the wording, verse 3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. And in verse 4, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit. You see, when you see such a parallel in wording, even though there is a parenthetical thought in between, you want to connect it. You want to look at the relationship because Paul here is giving a simile as well as a contrast. And what is he contrasting? Well, I'll tell you what. If you look at commentaries, you will probably see, if you compare a few of them, you will probably see there is a great deal of discussion about what the spirit of holiness means. Well, I look at the parallel between the two verses. I look at the construction that Paul was inspired to put down in there. And it says, one thing is according to the flesh. The other thing is according to the spirit of holiness. And I get it. I don't need to argue. <laughs> because why do I get it? Why do you get it? Because one, it talks about he was a, 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 of the seed of David according to the flesh. It's very clear what that means, isn't it? That's a human nature that he shared, that he took upon himself. The other one, he, however, was the son of God according to the spirit of holiness. And there's only one who really is holy in that sense, and that is God himself. So he's talking about the divine nature in Christ. Fully God, yet fully man. Very God, very man. We have here Paul beginning the letter to the Romans with a statement about the miracle of the Incarnation, a statement that we need to understand, a miracle that we need to understand, something amazing, something awesome, that we need to realize what the meaning of. He is the one, only, true, eternal God made flesh in the entire fullness of the deity. Think about that. You see, the, the word, the logos, that we are talking about here, the one who became Jesus Christ, never ceases to be the Lord of heaven and earth. He never ceases to be God, to be God the creator, reconciler, and redeemer. Oh yeah, people argue about John chapter 1 and verse 1, because some people took it upon themselves to add something to that verse in order to deny the deity of Christ. But you know what? You read the context and you can't escape that. Because everything that was made was made by him and through him. 
Well, they say, well, of course, that, include, that, that excludes him. Well, no, everything that was made was made by him and through him. That makes him the creator God of all things. And he never ceased to be that. You see, the incarnation is not a natural process. It is not a byproduct of this world. It's not a byproduct of creation. It's not something that creation has somehow evolved to do or to accomplish. It is a new creation. It is a sovereign, divine act, an act of lordship that is different from what happens within creation. Because nothing like that can happen within creation. It is God, that word, that logos, that becomes flesh. But it is not the flesh that becomes God. Think about that for a second. It is that logos that becomes the flesh, but it is not the flesh that becomes God. It is not a process that starts in our world. It's not a process that starts in nature. It's not a process that starts in creation. It is something that God does, performs as a new creation. You see, he is the word, the Logos, God, before and apart from being flesh. Long before the incarnation. In fact, long before Abraham was, he is. Even as incarnate, He's still, even as a human, God in the flesh, he still derives his being, his essence, his life, his very being from the Father and from himself as God and not from the flesh. Think about that for a second. And, and when you have that in mind, think about the temptations in the wilderness. And how in every single case those temptations would have caused the flesh to rule over the divinity in Christ. In other words, in every single one of those temptations, he would have seen the divine nature of Christ subservient to the human nature. As if the human nature came first and God was added to that to help him out. As if we could pray... God, help me to do all the good things that I want to do. It's subtle, but that's why it might have been a temptation. And it is still a temptation for many of us, most of us, to think of ourselves as being the one who accomplished all things with God's help, of course. That makes it righteous. When we add to that with God's help, it means that what we do is righteous. But we don't realize that we are putting things upside down. We don't realize that it is the work of a divine manifest in the flesh and not the work of a flesh manifest in the divine. And so we too can learn from that. And perhaps instead of praying, God, let me do that, help me to do that, we might begin to pray, Lord, you do that and transform me. And change me. Because it is a divine. Acted in the flesh. The equation that we have in that statement. Very God and very man. Or fully God and fully man. 
needs to be understood as an equalization of something that is not equal to begin with. There is no equality between the divinity, God, and the humanity, man. But in Christ, the two are made one. Not because the flesh rises to God, but because God make himself, makes himself flesh. And in him, there is that oneness, that unity, that oneness of God, the divinity, with man, the humanity. And that's the only way that you and I can have access to God. The only way that this inequality that divides this difference, this big, insuperable, unbridgeable, if you want to put it that way, chasm between us and God, does have a connection. That connection is not just what Christ did. That connection is Christ himself. Because it is in him that that oneness occurs. It is in him that the two are made equal. Fully God and fully man. God does not cease to be God in the incarnation. So there is one thing that is not occurring. God stopping being God and becoming just a man. That's not the case. Nor is the opposite the case. Or better yet, perhaps I should explain it in a different way. I should say God does not create something hybrid, some hybrid that is somewhere, somewhere in between God and man that is separate from, from that. Like, well, like for example in Greek mythology, these half-gods and half-men, children of the gods and children of the man who are neither one or the other. No, he does not stop being God and he does not create a hybrid that is different, something between God and man. What he does is he himself in the fullness of the deity, in the fullness of God, chooses to make himself fully man. And here the incarnation and the resurrection are presented as a supreme act of revelation right here. Paul introduces the gospel with that. Paul introduces the revelation of God with that. And he points to the birth and he points to the resurrection. Think about that for a second. In terms of the, of the sharing of the gospel. The first sign that we see in here is a virgin having a child. Well, that doesn't happen in a natural world. It does not happen according to creation's laws. It does not happen as an act of the created world. It happens as an act of God, as an act of the divine. Jesus Christ, born from a virgin, is an act of God. It is a sign. A sign that was given long before, centuries before to the prophets, that the virgin will have a child. And that child will be called the Most High. So there is a sign at the beginning. 
There are many other signs. Jesus walking on the water, coming in storms. Jesus controlling the very nature that is around him. Jesus being over life and death as it brings people to life after their death. Jesus taking upon himself our pain and sorrow as he heals people because he himself takes their pain upon himself. There are many miracles and signs during his life. Many miracles and signs that he himself said, look, believe my words. But if you can't believe my words, then what's the second best? Believe the signs that I do. He didn't put it the other way around. He didn't say, believe the signs, and if you can't believe the signs, at least take my word for it. He said it the opposite. His word is precious and very, very, very valuable. But if we can't believe his word as yet, we might believe those signs. The signs that he gave are things that only God can do. Only God is over life and death. Only God is in control of nature. Only God is a creator and sustainer of all things. But then there is another sign at the end of his earthly ministry. And that sign is what he gave the disciples. He said, three days I'm going to be in the grave. And then I'll come out. And I'll see you again. The sign that he offers at the end is an empty tomb. Again, like Barclay said, the others are dead and gone. They left a memory. And we only have a memory of them, right? But Jesus lives on. And he gives us his presence. Even today. Still mighty with power. Not just any power, not just the power that is acquired from something else, just the power that he has in himself as being fully God. It is the power of God himself. Because that's who he is. Because he never ceased to be what he was before. That means God. He never ceased being God. But he became what he was not before. Man. And he did it for you. Think about that. And if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what can. How much has, have people done for you lately? I'm not talking about, you know, problems and grief. <laughs> that sometimes people tend to give each other. And I'm not talking about the gifts of Christmas. Or the cards that people send with good wishes. I'm talking about real giving, meaningful giving, a giving on themselves. You know, I remember when I got married, one, one of the uh, staff in the college, we were in the Bible college back then, one of the staff in the college called me up in his office and, and he said, well, I want to give you, my wife and I want to give you a gift. What, what would you like? And, you know, I, I'm, I'm from Italy and over there, at least in the area I grew up in, it's very, very impolite to ask for a gift. 
because then it no longer becomes a gift. It becomes an imposition. It becomes something that you demand, something that you want, and people will satisfy you with. And to me, that request was almost offensive. What do you mean, what I want? For? I don't want anything. That's why it's called a gift. Because it's something that you give, not I demand or ask for. But he insisted. And I tried to explain to him, I, I don't need anything. I don't want anything. Just, it's, it's okay. I have the greatest thing I could possibly have. The blessing of God with a wonderful wife. That's it. That's all. That's all I want. But he insisted again. So I looked at him straight in the eyes and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You give me an hour of your time, you and your wife, and I'll regard that as a wedding gift. I'm still waiting for it 34 years after. He would have gladly cut out a check. He would have gladly put his hand in the pocket and pulled out some money. He would have gladly maybe even bought something. But giving him himself, even for an hour, never happened. God gave himself for you. The one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who controls everything, did not give up who he is, who he was before, but became what he was not, man, fully God and fully man, to connect with you and me. And to have that connection, to have that redemption, to have that reconciliation, so that us, the human, could be raised up to him, the divine, and have oneness and communion with him in Christ. It's quite meaningful, isn't it? Think about it. And since then, God himself, in person, has become actively pleasant in the flesh. Oh, wait a second, you say. But, oh, hold on, hold on. You're, you're saying something preposterous. Because you say, since then, he's been active in the flesh, but he's dead. He's risen glorious. Yeah, but he's in you. And since then, he's been active in the flesh. Your flesh. Your body. Which is his body. We all are. And it's still active. In a different way, isn't it? But it's still active. And that's what we're reminded of. We're not reminded of some guy who was born 2,000 years ago. We're not reminded of some prophet that came along and said some nice things. We're not reminded even of some great ruler. We're reminded of God Almighty. Who's still active in you. And still conducts his mission. In and through you. That's why Paul put it in a context wrapped before and after, sandwiched, if you want it, you know, that statement that summarizes the gospel, that, that divinity and the humanity in Christ be made one, is sandwiched in two statements about mission. The mission that he had received as an apostle to share that good news with others, and the mission 
in which we participate. Not because we are good or better than the others, not because we are great, not because it's our own idea, not because we have invented something amazing and we want to share with everybody else, but because He Himself, God Almighty, the Creator, the Reconciler, the Redeemer, the One who sustains all things, made Himself human and is now active in us because He makes us one with Himself and with God, with the divinity. And so we are made partakers of His divine nature, says Peter. The very, very essence of Him, the very love of God, says Paul to the Romans later in the same letter, in the same book, in the chapter 5 of the same letter, he says the very nature of God, the very essence of God who is love, is poured out in our hearts so that it can be displayed and manifest within us. We have a job. And instead of wasting this season, talking about all sorts of materialistic things, instead of wasting this season with stuff and goods, and food, and prosperity, and money, and deer, and Santa, and slaves, and whatever else you have in there that distracts our mind. What about using this season as a reminder of that miracle of the Incarnation, and share that gospel, and share that news, the good news that we have in Him, in our thoughts? in our words, in our actions, in everything. Because that's who we are, not just what we do. That's who we are in Him. We are part of Him, we are part of His ministry. As we partake of His divine nature. Not because the flesh made itself God, but because God made himself human for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for that awesome miracle. Thank you, Father, for that awesome, awesome act of your creation, of transforming in that act, transforming in you, in yourself, and in your presence in creation, as you enter your own creation and you become part of that, make yourself part of it without ceasing to be the God whom you are. We're made one with you as well. Thank you. Please make us instruments of your peace. Please make us instruments of your grace. Please, Lord God Almighty, Make us beacons of your love. Because we are nothing in and by ourselves. But it's all, all worthwhile because of you. Precious. And amazing. So we thank you and praise you. And once again, commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.